On today's episode of the London Lyceum, Brandon and I talk with our friend Chris Wozniki again about theological anthropology. This is really his wheelhouse, so I think it's a really fun episode. We talk about a lot of things that um, relate to this topic, particularly the image of God, which is often hotly contested, and at least for me, an area of confusion and not complete understanding. So Chris walks us through various views on this, what exactly uh, theological anthropology is, how the image of God relates to that, and what are the different views on the image of God. I think you're really going to enjoy the episode. He does a really helpful job of laying things out for us. So I think it's really good stuff. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum, where we hope to encourage our listeners to think deeply and clearly about uh, issues, particularly those theological issues. And I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your other host, Brandon Askew. And today we welcome back uh, a friend and former guest, Chris uh, Wozniki, onto the show to talk about Christological anthropology. So we're really looking forward to the topic itself. Um, For those who may not remember who Chris is or who haven't listened to his previous episodes yet, number one, you should go listen to those episodes. But number two, Chris, why don't you uh, reintroduce yourself to us so that those who may not know uh, can have a sense of who you are? Yeah, uh, thanks, Jordan and Brandon. Yeah, um, as you said, my name is Chris Wozniki. I am a soon-to-be doctor of theology, hopefully uh, within the next... Uh, probably a month from when this comes out, I'll already have my PhD in hand or really close. Um, I'm in the final stages. Um, I teach at a Bible college called Eternity Bible College, which is in Simi Valley, California. And I also uh, teach at Fuller Seminary. So I teach um, some classes over there as well. So yeah, um, I'm a dad of two kids. I think last time I was on here, I was saying that like, my daughter was about to, my second child was about to come any minute, um, and she did. <laughs> she came a lot earlier um, than we expected. Um, so yeah, now uh, we have a four-year-old and a almost six-month-old. So yeah. That's awesome. Shiloh, uh, Shiloh is the older one, and, and Abigail is the little one. They're both little. But little <laughs> yeah, Brandon, <laughs> you, you have a, what, a seven-month-old yep. son? Yep, three-year-old and a seven-month-old. Yep. So. Yeah. We're living the same life, it sounds like. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, I guess we can jump right in. So um, thanks again for, for joining us again. So maybe start with just the definition of theological anthropology. And if you want to maybe weave in as part of your definition, just let our listeners know you know, how that's different from a traditional understanding of anthropology or cultural anthropology, and also how it um, differs from philosophy of mind, if you don't mind. Yeah, for sure. So um uh, a while ago, a friend of mine, I posted something on Facebook uh, about how theological anthropology has made me value uh, conservation efforts a bit more and just think about image of God kind of stuff. Uh, and a friend of mine who is doing graduate work in cultural anthropology basically asked the question, uh, what is theological anthropology? Because she does one kind of anthropology, I'm doing another kind of anthropology. Um, and sort of at the risk of sounding redundant, I, I wanted to say that it's just anthropology, but theological. Um, that probably wouldn't have helped her much. Uh, but I, I went on to explain that it's just the study of humanity from a theological perspective. And I think for her, that kind of definition was sufficient. But if I were actually teaching a class on theological anthropology, or I had a session on theological anthropology, um, I would break it down into two things. Um, it's theological, 
right? It's theological reflection on the human person. So those two parts, theological and human person, um, I'd want to sort of separate those two out a little bit more. Uh, on the theological side, I'd really want to emphasize the fact that human persons cannot be understood completely without reference to theological claims. Um, so the specific theological claim I have in mind is that humans were created to exist in a special kind of divine human relationship. And that conviction about this special kind of divine human relationship, uh, which obviously we can get into more depth about, it's kind of vague and I leave it vague on purpose a little bit. Um, this, that conviction plays out when we think about the image of God, when we think about sin, when we think about redemption, human destiny, human vocation, all those kinds of things. So, um, so that's one, one aspect is the theological side of stuff. Um, and along with that, I really want to emphasize that reflection upon divine human relationship begins with Christ. Uh, Christ is fully human and he's fully divine. And I'd emphasize that he's the theological focus of all of creation. So there's that part. Then there's the human person part, which is the anthropological part. Um, and I'd say that the task of theological anthropology involves trying to understand the human person. And in my opinion, humans actually like, exist in a world, right? We exist in the world. Mm -hmm. And that means that uh, our work in theological anthropology will need to be interdisciplinary because theology doesn't address um, every aspect of, uh, of human life. Right? There are other aspects of what it means to be, what it, what it looks like to live as a human in this world that isn't addressed solely by uh, theology. So, for example, we might need to think of human beings uh, in conversation with cultural anthropology, philosophy of mind, psychology, cognitive science, sociology, um, all those kinds of things. Uh, but ultimately, theological anthropology has to be theological, even though it's in conversation with these other disciplines. Um, what are those disciplines? And the question that you asked was philosophy of mind. Um, I won't go into a lot of depth about how philosophy of mind interacts with theological anthropology. Um, other than this, um, philosophy of mind examines how human um, how the human mind works, right? There's stuff like mental events, mental properties, the relationship between mind and body. Uh, in other words, the, the mind-body problem. Theological anthropology addresses these kinds of questions um, as a subset of theological anthropology. Now, it's not the whole thing. Now, typically, when people think about theological anthropology, um, if you're just to ask uh, an informed layperson about this, um, they might say, Theological anthropology involves the Imago Dei, so image of God stuff, and um, human constitution. They might not say it that way, human constitution, but that's what they would think about, you know, like yeah. trichotomism, dualism, monism, that kind of stuff. Um, now, though, that question about how we're constituted um, is closely related to philosophy of mind. But it's not the whole thing. It's not all of theological anthropology. It's yeah, yeah. Well, I think that makes sense. So you, you've mentioned a couple of times this, I guess, somewhat interchangeable, Christological anthropology, theological anthropology. Is, is there a difference between these two terms? Yeah, um, there is. There is a, a difference between these two terms. I think the way I'd want to answer that is that when we're doing theological anthropology, we all 
have a method. Right? We all start in a particular place. Um, it's really easy or tempting to just sort of open up the Bible and find a passage that deals with the topic or even a passage that has a particular word in the topic, right? So mm -hmm. if you want to think about the image of God, you open Genesis 1, um, see what it has to say, just restate what the passage says. Or if you're thinking about the soul, find where the Bible uses the word soul and just sort of restate that. Um, but like any other topic in systematic theology, things aren't that easy, right? We don't want to just take the sort of concordance approach to systematic theology. Um, so the question is, where do we begin our reflection on what it means to be human? And there's been typically, there's roughly two kinds of answers to that kind of question. Uh, the first answer involves reflecting upon our human experiences, uh, our experience of being human. And the second type of approach involves reflecting on God himself. Um, now I could give you examples if, if that's what you guys want of, um, the, the sort of more experiential approach, um, if you guys want that. Otherwise, I'll just jump right into sort of the theological approaches. I said jump, go go for it. Jump right into it? Jump, yeah, jump into the theological Okay, approach. yeah, yeah. So, um, so the second type, the, the more sort of theological approach, starts out, starts reflection on what it means to be a human person by reflecting on doctrines like the Trinity or Christology. So Trinity and Christology, um, if you think about theologians who start with the Trinity, Trinity, um, you might think of like Colin Gunton, Stanley Grenz, Leonardo Boff. Um, Stanley Grenz might be probably the most familiar to a lot of people. Um, yeah. He has a book called The Social God and the Relational Self. Um, another sort of Trinitarian um, theologian who does theological anthropology or draws out implications as John Zazulis. Uh, being in communion is probably the one that most people think about. And in that book, he essentially argues um, that the being of God, Father, Son, and Spirit is the proper starting place for thinking about what it means to be a person. And according to him, if we look at the Trinity, persons are constituted by relations. Therefore, um, to be a human person as well, since we are persons, um, that can only happen when we're in communion with others. So that's sort of the Trinitarian approach. But then there's the Christological approach, um, which I'm highly in favor of. And the Christological approach basically says that claims about theological anthropology are warranted when they're drawn, or at least when they are, um, in, not at least, when they're either entailed, drawn, or warranted by Christological claims. So that's, that's kind of the basics of Christological anthropology. But there's two kinds, um, or at least two different approaches that I, two different, um, maybe not approaches, but along the spectrum, there's two different um, poles of what Christological anthropology would be. So on the one hand, you have narrow approaches, and that's essentially uh, the approach in which Christology warrants important claims about what it means to be a human on a narrow range of topics. So image of God, maybe personhood, maybe soul. So just this, Christology informs a few things, basically, about what it means to be human. On the other hand, you have broad Christological anthropologies. And as the name would imply, that means that Christology um, warrants important claims about anthropology across a broad range of topics. Um, so those are sort of the two different um, approaches that you see people take. Um, Christology warrants 
important claims about human beings on narrow range and Christology warrants important claims across a broad range. So you mentioned the uh, the image of God. So maybe take a moment just to drill down on that a bit further. Um, first begin by defining what the Imago Dei is. And then I know throughout the history of the church, there's been different understandings of, of exactly what the image is. Maybe you could sketch out a few of those different options and um, tell us where you land on that and then how we weave that back into um, <clears throat> the broader topic of theological anthropology. Yeah, no, that's good. Um, so I, I really don't like doing this, but it makes it a lot easier. Um, so there's basically three different accounts of what constitutes the Imago Dei. Um, and the reason I say I hate to do it is because it's so under-nuanced. And most of the theologians were told that held to such and such views actually held them in a lot more complicated manners. Um, so you can't like neatly classify these theologians. Some of them you can, but a lot of the, um, the greats of the past, you can't neatly classify them into these three types, but um, makes things easier to teach. So we use categories like that. Uh, so the first view is what is often called structural approaches, sometimes called substantial approaches. And basically the idea is that the image of God is a capacity or a set of capacities that somehow reflects uh, God in some way. So maybe it's rationality, maybe it's the will. Everybody tends to say that the, this is the classical view, and I'm not 100% sold on that. I see other views uh, popping up uh, across the tradition, uh, but whatever. Let's just say it's the classical view. <laughs> Nowadays, it's hard to find systematic theologians who argue for a plain, just sort of very plain substantive view. Um, that might not be the case in all areas, but I think in general, the trend is that most systematic theologians are not huge fans of the classical substantial or structural approach. Some philosophers really like it though. Um, Aku Visla, uh, Josh Ferris, and J.P. Moreland all argue for some kind of structural view, although different ways of articulating it. Um, but you see a lot of philosophers of religion, Christian philosophers, arguing for that. So um, the first one is a structural. Second one, uh, you have functional approaches. And this approach emphasizes the fact that God, um, the image of God is something that humans do instead of something that humans are. So for example, the most common kind of functional approach emphasizes that the image of God in the ancient Near East was typically some sort of statue or some sort of um, physical thing that represented the authority and presence of a divine being. So sometimes a king could be called the image of God in the ancient Near East because the king represented the God's rule and authority over a particular area. Sometimes that's applied to statues uh, with regards to kings. And the idea is basically that human beings are God's image because they are um, his representative rulers. They're his vice regents, his vicars, if you want to put it that way. And anecdotal evidence, just like my own reading, suggests that most biblical scholars are in favor of this view. So a couple of famous advocates of it, um, Richard Middleton, G.K. Beale, all fall under this second camp, the functional approach. Uh, and finally, you have the relational approaches. It's the third kind. And I'd want to venture to guess that this sort of has won the day when it comes to a lot of systematic theologians <clears throat> and probably a lot of pastors as well. Um, 
they might not articulate it that way, but when they preach, that's really what it sounds like. And this approach basically says that the image is found in how humans relate to God or to other humans, or sometimes even to uh, rest of creation. So typically people will point out how the Trinity is relational and that relationality is mirrored by humans. Um, and some people like, for example, Karl Barth want to emphasize the male female relationship as sort of clu um, cluing us into this fact. So like he talks about uh, the I thouness of uh, the male female relationship where there's this confrontation uh, in difference and in similarity and how that reflects the I thouness of God himself. So Bart, Stanley Brenz, Alistair McFadden, uh, all these people want to emphasize those approaches. So go ahead, Brandon. Well, I was just going to say, you know, it seems to me there's, and I think you've already hinted at this, but there's nothing that would preclude, preclude us from, you know, taking a little bit from each one of these different views. And I know, I think last time we talked to you about the atonement, you, you mentioned there was kind of like a, um, a kaleidoscope view on, on the atonement, which I know is totally, well, maybe not totally, but it's unrelated to this, but <clears throat> just made me think about that. Are there any views that, that people have tried to weave together certain aspects from, you know, structural, functional, and relational and, and tried to, you know, kind of make a, a hybrid of the three? Yeah. Um, we do find that, um, in, in, in the literature about it. So Mark Cortez has a short little book, uh, I think it's a guide for the perplexed in the guide for the perplexed series, which is just another way of saying, uh, for dummies series, <laughs> uh, it's more academic, um, on theological anthropology. And he has a section where he tries to sort of figure out the multifaceted view, what he calls a multifaceted view, or what I guess we could call the kaleidoscope view. Mm -hmm. I think the problem is, I think exegetically, it would be hard to try to say that like all of these come out from the exegesis of scripture. Now, what I would want to say is that all of these elements in some way are part of what it means to be a human being, but not necessarily that these three things can be equated with the image of God, right? So one yeah, of them might cool. be the image of God, but we might also be relational as a fact part of the fact that we're human beings might mean that we're relational or that we have a particular function or that we're constituted by body and soul or whatever other sort of account we might want to give. Um, so you might still want to say that all of these aspects are included in our definition of being a human, but not necessarily that those things just constitute the image of God. No, that's helpful. Thank you. So, uh, so as I think about these three broad areas, I mean, I am curious where you land, and I guess maybe you could just walk me through what are the benefits for sticking with this structural approach or going functional or going relational, or what are some reasons that I would want to avoid those? Yeah. Yeah, so, um, yeah, each of these are, I think the, the benefit is that all of these have some sort of basis either in scripture or in our experience, right? Um, structural or substantial view. Uh, it either emphasizes rationality or will, which is obviously an aspect of human beings. Like human beings are rational beings. Human beings have a will. Um, so same thing could be said functional view. Human beings have a particular function. That's pretty clear from scripture. Um, relational view. 
if you don't see that human beings are relational beings, uh, especially in this time when we're sort of uh, on lockdown or safer at home or whatever you want to call it, um, you now realize how relational we really are and that we thrive on relationship. Um, so I, I guess the, the strength of each of these views is that they all have a basis either in scripture, in our experience, or in all, most of these cases in both. Um, but each of these actually have problems. And um, I guess there's one sort of set of problems that I'm especially worried about for the majority of these views. And that involves people who are either too young or have mental impairments um, and they can't actually live out these things. So for example, uh, a substantial view, right? If, if the image is some sort of rationality or the will, um, there might be certain categories of people that can't exercise that. Um, same thing with the functional view, there are certain categories of people who might not be able to exercise whatever that function is. Uh, the relational view, same thing, right? Um, there are certain people, human beings, certain human beings who don't have the capacity to enter into those sort of reciprocal relationships that constitute the image of God. Um, now, there's certain ways to sort of provide nuance to each of these views that sort of mm -hmm. avoids that kind of problem. But that's just a sort of very generic problem that there are people who might not fit all of these definitions or either one of these definitions. And I take it that if your definition of the Imago Dei excludes certain human beings from bearing the image of God, then that's pretty problematic. You know, that's yeah. put it bluntly a bad definition. So I think that'd be my biggest concern with some of these views. How do we think through um, through the fall when we when we think about certain individuals that may not I guess my question is how much of um, you mentioned you know some people don't 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 fall neatly under one of these three categories how much of that can we attribute to the fall of humanity um, in other words you know people who don't have a mental <clears throat> certain mental capacities well we would say that that's a result of the fall right so so the image has been marred in some way even if it's you know not lost because well the world is you know not the way God originally intended it is there a way around some of those problems if we view it from a, a post-fall, uh, through a post-fall lens, I guess, or are there still problems that can't be overcome by appealing to the fall? Yeah, um, so I think appealing to the, the fall, it would help you to say that certain people might not, hmm, trying to think how to, how to phrase this. Um, so you, in light of the fall, you might still say that human beings as, uh, as a species have this image that's been marred, but then I'm not sure how you would avoid the fact that, well, even though human beings were created in such a way that they would have had the image if there wasn't a fall, um, mm -hmm. that doesn't exclude the fact that, well, now certain human beings in this world don't have the image. Um, and that's, that's pretty different from saying that human beings have a marred image or a defective right. image. Yeah. Um, some of these categories that I've put out um, and some of these definitions would say that, no, it's not just that it's marred. It's that they don't have it yeah. um, because they don't meet these conditions. So, right. so, I, 
So I think you've said you think Christology should be a starting point for doing our theological anthropology. So how does that then inform how we should think about the image of God? Yeah. Yeah. So there's a strong biblical basis for talking about the image of God in light of Christology. So uh, just for example, 2 Corinthians 4.4 talks about how unbelievers have been blinded uh, and they can't see the light of the gospel displays Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. Um, John 14, Jesus says, anyone who's seen me has seen the Father, Christ images uh, God. Hebrews 1.3, which is a really sort of famous one for this, uh, says that the Son is the, the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Colossians 1.15, Christ is the image of the invisible God. So like there's all this sort of image of God language attached to Christ throughout the New Testament. Um, And so if we think about it in terms of progressive revelation, it seems that like the image of God that was originally referred to in Genesis 1 uh, is further being clarified or um, further being nuanced as we go. Uh, And that sort of climaxes in Christ himself, who we see is the image of God. Um, So there's that biblical sort of basis for that. And I actually like the way that Oliver Crisp, uh, he puts it, he has one essay on um, uh, on um, Christology and the image of God. And basically he says this, and I'll just read him here. He says, quote, on this view, the image of God is born by one individual, Christ. Other human beings are made in the image of God to the extent that they're conformed to the likeness of Christ, rather like the prototype of an automobile and the production model that is based on the blueprints of the model. Christ is a prototypical human. We're made in his image, as it were, so that we reflect God in some measure as we image Christ, the God-man. And that's from his book, uh, The Word in Flesh. Uh, so, so then the question is, how, in what way do we reflect God as we image Christ? And he suggests that the way that we do that um, has to do with the fact that God made human nature capable of bearing union with the divine. So to be made in the image of God, according to Crisp, uh, is to bear the kind of nature that has the capacity and power to be united to God. And I think that that approach avoids um, the objections I made earlier about excluding certain kinds of people uh, in regards to the rationality or the will or their uh, conscious relationships or authority or whatever. Uh, because in principle, God, second person in the Trinity, um, yeah, that there's he he has he's united to a human being. What that human being, um, human nature looks like. Well, that could be a human nature that is rational, one that doesn't lack rationality, um, one that isn't able to exercise conscious relationships, whatever. So it, it's it's just human nature in general. So that seems like that's a that would fall under this structural capacity type view. It's just not placing it in rationality or the will it's just in the the ability to be united to god is that right yeah um yeah i would say that uh, in some sense it is um a, stru- a structural approach um in another sense you could look at it as a sort of relational approach because it emphasizes yeah, okay. the fact that human beings are created in the image of god to enter into this particular kind of relationship uh, one of union um so but then that's where these definitions get really tricky because mm-hmm. it's yeah. sort of like what comes first, right? Is it the structure that allows us to be into this kind of union 
or is it the union itself that constitutes the image? Um, so, yeah. Is, is he the only one making that argument? Because I don't, I don't remember anybody else saying something along those lines exactly. Um, so T.F. Torrance, um, he doesn't make the same exact sort of argument, but he emphasizes the fact that the image relationship in human beings um, is sort of perfected when human beings enter into union with Christ. Uh, and he also wants to emphasize that Christ is sort of the paradigmatic or prototypical uh, case for the image. So although it's not exactly the same, um, he would also want, Torrance would also want to say that humans are able to fully image God when they are united to God in Christ. That makes sense. So what would you say are some of the the pastoral implications that, that, that flow out of all of this, you know, how we think about Christ and his relation to, you know, the image of God and, and all of that as pastors, you know, this is no small thing like for us to think through. So how, what do you think are some of the implica implications that we can take from all this? Yeah. Um, so my money, so to speak, is on the Christological view and I'm not sure if I'm, on board with um, with Crisp's account of it, yeah. mainly because I don't see so like exegetically the functional aspect really has to play an important role, um, mm -hmm. the authority piece, and I don't really see that coming out. That that doesn't mean it necessarily excludes it, um, but it might put an emphasis where the emphasis, where exegetically the emphasis is somewhere else. Um, but having said that. Um, I think when we're thinking about the pastoral implications, um, we need to have people consider one, is your doctrine biblical? Um, two, does it help your congregation love the least of these well? And that's why I sort of brought up those objections against the other ones, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. that it creates problems for seeing humans as all human beings as actually um, bearing the image of God. And third, um, for this audience, does it accord with the confessions in your tradition? I think that's an important sort of teaching aspect yeah. as well. Um, so I think the biblical criteria, obviously, and that should go without saying for most uh, pastors. Uh, the confessional part, <clears throat> so like the London Baptist Confession, uh, 1689, says this, and I'll quote it. It says, after God had made all other creatures, he created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, rendering them fit unto God to life for which they were created. This is the key part. Being made after the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. Uh, the New Hampshire Confession says the exact same thing. Uh, but what's really sort of tricky with this, if you're trying to meet the, um, the confessional criteria, is what exactly is being referred to as the image of God in this. Is it knowledge, righteousness, holiness? Is that is it just mm. an image of God with that? Yeah. Or is that just part of what it looks like to live as the image? Um, so there's a little bit of trickiness there, um, which you'd have to think about a little bit more carefully. Um, but I think the crucial one, the one that I would really want to emphasize is the criteria uh, regarding how our congregation can actually love the least of these in our society. Because historically, the image of God has been used 
in really powerful ways, um, negatively, but also positively. So positively, John Kilner, he has um, an essay in a book called Why People Matter. He's written a ton on the image of God. Uh, he basically says that where the image of God has been embraced and taken seriously, the poorest and the weakest people have usually benefited the most. Uh, and historically, that bears out a lot. So um, Gary Ferngren, he's a professor at Oregon State. Uh, he he writes on the history of medicine, healthcare, and early Christianity. And he essentially argues that um, he, Christians cared for the sick because every stranger who bore the uh, who was a neighbor actually bore the image of God. So like, care for the sick um, came out of this. The same thing uh, applies for when um, Christians tried to prevent infanticide and they took uh, in and rescued abandoned infants that they did that because they were motivated uh, in part by the fact that these children bore the image of God, all human beings bear the image of God. So, and like I could go on and on giving more examples about that, but the image of God is a very practical um, mm -hmm. doctrine. You know, Calvin, he, um, he, he, he talks about sort of the duty to our neighbor um, because they bear the image of God. Like, even if we like hate that person, even if that person were the most vile person in the world, uh, we still have a duty to our neighbor because they bear the image of God. Which reminds me of, of an essay I have um, in McMaster Journal of Theology and Ministry on Calvin and the Image, where I explore some of these issues on why, how Calvin applied the image to caring um, for the French refugees and also for preventing violence. That's fascinating. Do you have any other articles that you've written on this topic that people can find? Yeah, so very few that are currently out. So the one on Calvin, which I mentioned was in the McMaster Journal of Theology and Ministry. Um, and then I have a chapter in my dissertation on the image of God in T.F. Torrance and Calvin. So other than that, and that one's not out yet, um, hopefully. Which I, I, I hope you publish it so that we can all get access to it eventually. Yeah. Uh, so I, I'm just, I'm really, I, when you're talking about these different confessional statements on the image of God, I, I looked them up and I'm sitting there thinking, man, they really are very vague and on what they mean by that. And I'm just, scratching my head over here. I guess when I think about the terminology, knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, it seems like a lot of biblical commentators will go to some place like Ephesians 4, I think, where it mentions these phrases in connection with um, the image of God, maybe. And then it seems like the functional view has speaks a lot, if, I, if I'm remembering correctly, about these types of virtues in how they're actually ruling. They should be ruling in righteousness. I think Peter Gentry was one of my Old Testament professors, and that was one of his big things. He was a functional guy, and he would always push the idea of righteousness and holiness are part of the image of God. That's what part of it means to function in the image of God. Yeah. So I don't know if that's what they're trying to play off of, but it, it's, I mean, it's ultra vague to me. Yeah, they might be playing off of that, um, Although I'm not exactly sure, right? Um, yeah. In, so my familiarity is with the image of God in the Reformation. And um, there's a few reformers, Musculus, 
um, Vermigli, he they want to emphasize the functional aspect of the image of God. But then there's others like Calvin, who just who early on in his career is very sort of opposed to the functional view. Um, so he he tends to like uh, Chrysostom a bit, and he's just utterly confused why Chrysostom would advocate for a functional view of the image uh, or the authority view. Um, so you don't see as much, even though it's there in some, you don't see people emphasizing that as much in the Reformation period. And I know obviously these confessions are coming after the Reformation. Um, but my idea, my thought would be that it's less about connecting it to the Old Testament picture of what a king rules like, and more about connecting it to Christ. Now, obviously those two are, um, are supposed to be like, uh, interrelated, right? Uh, Christ is the king, like he is the Messiah. All these Old Testament kings are pictures of, um, of Christ. But when you talk about the New Testament passages, uh, you talk about being renewed in the image of Christ, those kinds of words, righteousness, holiness, um, forgot what the other one was from the, the confession, uh, knowledge, all those things are very sort of Christological terms. Um, mm -hmm. So it might be that there are just uh, these confessions are this these two confessions are repeating that christological language um yeah that that might be, oh, that'd, be that'd be sort of my my guess that it's they're repeating that because that's sort of the safest way to go instead of sort of speculating or arguing and making a confessional yeah. statement that really pins people down um they can go with something that everybody sort of agrees agrees with like these things are part of what it looks like to live as the image of God. Now, it might not be what constitutes the image of God, but if you're living as the image of God, you will leave, live out these characteristics. Um, yeah. No, I mean, really, that makes sense to me. So for those who want to follow your work, at, you know, you're, you're hopefully publish your dissertation at some point, you got more articles that might be forthcoming on different topics. Um, where where's the best place for them to follow you? I know you have a Twitter, uh, but are there other places that they should check out? Um, yeah, so as you said, Twitter it's at uh, cwoznicki. That's um, where I'm probably most active. Um, I have a WordPress um, blog that I run. It's uh, cwoznicki.com, just like my name. Uh, Theology News is another place where I um, put out information. Uh, Theology News is sort of like a, I guess the best way to put it, it's like a clearinghouse for information. So when it comes to calls for papers, when it comes to conference calls, when it comes to institutional news, um, that's sort of a place where uh, Fred Sanders um, initially came up with it, uh, invited me and um, another fuller PhD student, Jesse Gentile, to contribute to that. So that's where I'm putting out most of, so that's sort of my like public face when it comes to academic stuff. Um, as far as theological anthropology goes, that one article on Calvin that I mentioned, um, and the dissertation which will cover several topics in theological anthropology, including the image of God, human vocation, uh, metaphysics of human beings, um, human destiny, just a bunch of different things. There's eight chapters. That's awesome. Uh, so 
One one last question before we we wrap things up. For those who want to learn more about the topic, um, what are other just general resources? I know you've you've mentioned a couple uh, different re- like people who are espousing different views, um, but I have are those the people we should be going to to buy their books if we want to learn more about someone who's advocating for a structural view or a relational view or giving an overview? Uh, where should we go as our go to resources? Yeah, um, so a person doing theological anthropology that I'm um, really into, kind of stuff they're doing, um, their approach, not necessarily agree with um, all their sort of conclusions, but uh, the method. So Mark Cortez, he has several books. Um, I think his most recent one on Christological anthropology is called Resourcing Theological Anthropology. Um, he has a couple, so you can look him up. He has a theological anthropology in the Guide for the Perplexed series. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really good sort of starting place if you want to get a lay of the land. That book covers uh, mind-body problem, image, uh, sexuality, and I think maybe one other uh, issue in theological anthropology. So stuff written by Mark Cortez is great. Um, there's, I think it's the TNT Clark no, it's the Ashgate. It's the Ashgate Handbook to Theological Anthropology. Um, the essays in that book are a little bit more technical, um, but they're all, they approach theological anthropology mainly from an analytic kind of lens. Um, so I think that's a really good sort of handbook overview of a bunch of different issues and a bunch of different positions on different issues. So Mark Cortez, that that book, which was edited by Joshua Ferris and um, Charles Talifert, I think it's how you pronounce it, even though it doesn't look like Talifert, yeah, right. you pronounce it. Um, and then um, I really like Pokemon's um, Created in the Image, I think it's called, um, that presents a pretty nice suit of form kind of approach to theological anthropology. Awesome. That's good stuff. So uh, we want to give you a huge thanks for coming on the show again to talk about uh, theological and Christological anthropology. I think this is really helpful uh, in thinking through particularly the image of God, because I feel like I remember when I was an undergrad, I was a Bible student or whatever you want to call it. And I had no clue what to think about this topic. And this, I think, is really helpful in explaining it. So thanks a lot for, for doing that. Um, For those who've been listening, you've been listening to the only Analytic Baptist and Confessional podcast that exists, and we thank you for tuning in. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.